Thanks to our sponsor, Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local D.C. area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who have more questions than answers, like us at DC by Foot. We're really excited to partner with them next month to learn all about personal liability as a tour guide in Washington, DC. Visit their website at malloy-law.com or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. Everybody, welcome to Tour Guide Tell All. We're your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you the often scandalous and exciting bits of history. And it is 2024. It is the start of a new year, a new season, uh, a new pod. Not really the same pod, but slightly new and improved. So we are so happy to welcome you to our first episode of 2024. And as always, I'm Becca. I'm Rebecca. And together we're the oh, Rebecca's. Rebecca's. And we just want to give a shout out, first of all, to all of our wonderful listeners. Thank you so much for keeping the pod alive and going. We do this for you. I want to just thank all the people who listen to the pod who booked tours with us over the holiday season. It was awesome to meet so many of you listeners in real life. So thank you so much. If you're thinking about planning a trip for spring, if you're already thinking about spring break, your summer travels, we'd love to see you on a tour. You can check out our tour schedule, dcbyfoot.com. But thank you, listeners. It's really amazing to me that anyone who's not related to me listens to this podcast. So that's really cool of you. And a special, special thank you, of course, to our patrons who truly keep the lights on. They're the reason we're able to do this. If you're not a patron, a new year is a great time to start. You get a bonus episode every month. There are other perks. Uh, we have tour perks and discounts and things. So if you're thinking about becoming a patron, we have a link to that in our show notes. But thank you. Thank you, patrons. And yes, it's a new year, new topics, new episodes. Are you excited, Rebecca? I am excited. Very excited. We have we're new, exciting things for spring. We've got a lot lined up. We have still some gaps in our schedule, though. So if you have something you want to hear about, let us know. And we're doing a lot of fun patron episodes. So <laughs> got that happening. And we're ready. We're, we're expanding. We're doing new things. It's exciting. Yeah, I am really excited. I think we've got some really fun topics coming in the first couple of months. We've got some really interesting people we're going to talk about. We're going to be getting into some some topics that I think are going to be a little juicy. Uh, and I think we're kicking off with something a little different for us, I think. Uh, we've dabbled in this world of true crime and murder, but not often. So I'm very excited to get murdery today. <laughs> yes, we're going to get murdery today, friends. We're going to venture slightly into true crime. And we're also going to venture into something we've done a bit, which is the intersection of pop culture and actual fact, basically Hollywood and what they get wrong or right in this case. But we are going to talk about a very old 
movie that's based on an even older actual murder. So the movie, which Becca is, I'm hoping, going to go into detail on a little later on, <laughs> uh, is called Double Indemnity. You've probably heard of it. It's very famous. It's very good. In fact, if for just for the, the uninitiated, uh, Double Indemnity comes out in 1944. So this is during World War II. It has an incredible cast. It's Fred McMurray, which for those of you like me who grew up on kind of these old sort of Disney classic live action films. You think of Fred McMurray as the doofy dad or whatever, you know, the put upon professor, but he did a lot of these sort of dark film noir dramas. So you got Fred McMurray, you have Barbara Stanwyck, who is the femme fatale in Double Indemnity. You had Edward G. Robinson, of course, who does a ton of these crime movies. It's directed by and written by Billy Wilder, who um, becomes one of the most significant directors of the 20th century. And Double Indemnity really is kind of the template in many ways for what we think of as film noir today. Film noir exists before Double Indemnity, but it really comes to represent this genre. And this is a film that does pretty well at the box office at the time, and it's gone on to really be considered one of the kind of classic American films. Um, it's often in a lot of top 100 lists, top 50 lists for films made in the United States. And uh, I think for many people, many filmmakers and viewers, it sort of introduces this idea of this legal concept, double indemnity, which is in a nutshell that you cannot be tried for the same crime twice. That's double jeopardy. So double, double in- jeopardy. That's right. Right. Double indemnity is when you take out an insurance policy, you get double the money for an accidental death. So double indemnity is you've been insured, you've been indemnified twice for a violent or accidental death. And so it's the film is based on a real murder, which happened in 1927. They didn't call it double indemnity at the time. They call it the sash weight murder. And Barbara Stanwyck, who plays the sort of femme fatale in the movie, they changed the names to the movie for a lot of obvious legal reasons. Barbara Stanwyck is beautiful. And like Hollywood and beautiful, the woman she represents was not. That's, I think, one of the things that's sort of different here. Barbara Stanwyck is Barbara Stanwyck. But it is based on a real murder. And this is going to be about murder and also a little bit of misogyny. So we're like hitting our sweet spot right there. Good times. And so we're going to dial it back a little to 1927. March 20th, to be precise, on Long Island, Queens Village, police respond on a sleepy Sunday to a suburban home summoned by the missus of the house, Ruth Snyder. She claims that two giant Italians, this is her word, uh, have broken into her house, hit her on the head unconscious, bound and gagged her, then robbed her and murdered her husband, Albert, who is asleep in the bed next to her. All the while, their nine-year-old daughter, Lorraine, sleeps down the hall through all of this. Albert is very dead. He has been strangled with picture wire. He has had a chloroform-soaked rag stuffed up his nose and had been bashed in the head by the weight of a sash. So that's where the name of the murder comes from. Sash weight, if you have these old expensive uh, window treatments, these are the weights that keep the window treatments apart. They're sort of at the bottom. Your grandparents might have had sash weights in their house. This is not a thing that we really have anymore today because we all have Venetian blinds. But the sort of picture, these very heavy drapes with sashes uh, and something to keep, weigh the sashes down. That's what the sash weight is. It is a weight. So it is pretty, it's heavy uh, and it is not 
necessarily like you wouldn't look at it and think oh wow this is a murder weapon but also i wouldn't want this to come into contact with my skull either yeah if you hit someone hard enough with it it's gonna do some damage it is exactly what it sounds like it's probably i'd wager most sash weights were what a good five ten pounds yeah so you, you've got some bulk there yeah police are immediately suspicious <laughs> because this isn't really the kind of place where people just break into a house on a Sunday night, first of all. Second of all, there is no signs of break-in, which is not ideal when someone's broken into the house. Ruth Snyder does not look or act like someone who has been knocked out. In fact, the doctors, when they examine her, cannot find any reason that she would have been unconscious for several hours. And also her bed has not been slept in which belies the fact that she was sleeping next to her husband when he was attacked. They had twin beds, which was the convention of the time, in the same room. And she claims that they have been robbed, but when they do their cursory examination of the house, they find the jewelry under her mattress. So this is, the story's falling apart very quickly. (laughs) Very quickly. There does not seem to be any evidence of a forced entry there's no broken windows there's no smashed anything the only seeming evidence that someone else had been in the house other than the Snyders is that someone has very carefully laid a newspaper on the central table by the front entrance of their house and the newspaper is an anarchist newspaper and it is sort of folded in a way that like gives the police the immediate impression that like some anarchists were in the house. And the reason for this, this is the summer of Sacco and Vanzetti, which is another thing we should talk about on a whole pod. But they're trying to like link this very obviously to anarchists, Italian anarchists being in the house. So the police are very suspicious and kind of rightfully so. And then they find a button on the body of the deceased with the initials JG on the button. And they ask Ruth about it. And flustered, Ruth Snyder says, what What do you mean about Judd Gray? And the police say, who's Judd Gray, Ruth? So you immediately had a name for those set of initials. That's suspicious. Immediately, yeah, that immediately called someone to mind. So Judd Gray, as it turns out, and this at this point, Ruth kind of folds like a deck of cards. He is a corset salesman, lives nearby, with whom Ruth has been having an affair. But actually, as it turns out, those are not what the initials actually stood for. JG really stood for Jesse Guichard, which is the late Albert's late fiance, who he still kind of carried a torch for. So Albert, the deceased, has been found with the button of his dead fiance on him. His wife assumes in a somewhat terrible and interesting coincidence, they have the same initials. She assumes that refers to her affair partner Judd Gray so it's very confusing but we're going to leave them all there we're going to zoom out a little bit in 1915 19 year old Ruth Brown marries 32 year old Albert Snyder this is a significant age gap and Snyder isn't just older but also very severe and demanding kind of meticulous he's an art editor at a magazine and she is younger she's a vivacious and a tomboy she very quickly feels stifled according to her she wants lots of kids but he only consented to the one uh, and when it is a girl he's upset and blames her which is not how children work but that's a different story snyder constantly compares his wife 
to his late fiance Jesse, and she basically feels ignored and criticized and that her husband wishes she could be more like his late fiance. So it's really a bad scene. These are two mismatched people. And in case you're wondering which one of them is going to be the hero in this story, I'll skip ahead and tell you everyone in this story kind of stinks. They're all kind of jerks. She contemplates divorce, but this is not the easiest thing in the 1920s, particularly for a woman. Uh, and so instead, she starts to go out more. She starts to go out in the town. She has friends. She goes to cafes. Uh, she goes into New York. And at some point therein, she meets Judd Gray and they start an affair. Judd Gray is an unlikely, lustful, infidelity kind of person. He's very married. He's in his church choir. Uh, he's a corset salesman. He's not... He's not killing it in the looks department either, as it turns out. And they have an affair. And at this point, Ruth takes out an insurance policy for her husband, Albert, with $100,000 as an additional clause. This is the double indemnity clause. If he dies an accidentally or a violent death. And so then she decides she's going to make sure that he does. And Ruth spends a lot of time basically trying to make this happen it later comes out in the trial that she like tries to poison her husband all kinds of things and he proves very resistant to her it's giving it's giving coyote and roadrunner a little bit where like she is trying all these different ways and Never he yeah. whether he's suspicious or not it's hard to know because mm -hmm. he is dead at the point all this information is coming out but like was he just picking up that things weren't quite right or was it just like oh i happened to step to the side before the anvil fell on my head right kind of thing right there's a lot of basically one of the things she does is she'll crush sleeping pills and put them in his drink at night so is he noticing that he's going to sleep early probably not enough sleep because you'd notice the taste was different if it's too much uh enough to kill you whereas maybe he just noticed that he's sleeping more i don't know it's really not good it's a very bumbling attempt to kill him and so at this point she tries to like gas him at one point like she's really dedicated to making sure that he, she gets this hundred thousand dollars and frustrated increasingly by her husband's seemingly stubborn unwillingness to meet his own demise she then enlists judd gray her lover uh, and they craft a what they think of as the perfect murder spoiler alert it is not the perfect murder. basically he has an alibi judd gray he goes to a hotel in upstate new york in syracuse and is seen by a lot of people with a friend of his so that he has what he considers to be an ironclad alibi he'll then jump on the train and take a cab back to the city to help ruth out and accounts of what happens next vary depending on whether you believe ruth or you believe judd but he basically comes into the house and he says that he failed to kill Albert Snyder. He basically tried to hit him on the head with the sash weight and Snyder woke up. And so frustrated, Ruth basically took over and completed the, the murdering. Ruth, obviously, for, for obvious reasons, says the opposite. Judd Gray did this. This was all his idea. And very quickly, the two of them are going to fold like super fast. Once the police start questioning them, they do not hold up very well. Judd Gray holds out a little longer because he has this alibi that he thinks is going to save him. He was nowhere near there. He was seen by many people. But Ruth is going to throw him under the bus like so hard. And eventually it comes to light 
that what actually throws Joe Gray under the bus, amazingly enough, he had taken a cab from the train station to her house and tipped the cabbie five cents, which even in the 20s, that's not a big tip. And so the cabbie remembered this cheapo. This cheapskate. This cheapskate, exactly. And is very, like, eager to, like, give testimony, placing him at the murder site on the, at the night in question. So there's a lesson there about tipping. There's a lesson there. Tip your tip people well, because you don't cheat people. We will remember you. It's true. So it's very clear at this point, these two are breaking up. Like this is not, this isn't going to be a love story for the ages, right? Like Ruth and Judd Gray aren't going to be friendly anymore. They're They're both at the scene of the crime. So there's no getting out of that. Gray's got no leg to stand on. So it really becomes the he said, she said of who actually murdered this man. And this is where I think the press and media play a role. Yes. It's an interesting thing to me because the, the police immediately like, this does not take long for the police to figure this out. They're immediately suspicious. The crime scene does not look, even in the 20s, we don't have DNA yet or anything like that. There's no doubt really for the police that this story is not adding up the way that Ruth is telling it. So it was very poorly planned. And at one point, one of the reporters sort of attached to this case calls it the dumbbell murders because it's just so stupid. Thinking they created the perfect murder, it just, maybe we all watched too many crime shows in the year 2024, I don't know. But it just (laughs) seems like there's, like, they didn't even occur to them to muss up her bed. So it looks like she had been there. Like, it just... Or have Judd actually break in, so it looks like a break in. The man who gives that quote, by the way, is a very famous New York writer, Damon Runyon, if you know Guys and Dolls, the musical and and movie uh, that's based on his writings about kind of gangland New York. But the fact that he covered the crime beat as a reporter, and so the dumbbell murder, that's what it gets called. And you might think, oh, it's because he hits him over the head with a dumbbell. It's a sash weight. But it's because the two of them are such dummies. They're such dumbbells. They let this go. And it's so obvious to the reporters as it is to the police that these are not sophisticated criminals no they are not good at this they're almost laughably bad at this but for whatever reason this like super captures the imagination maybe they didn't have a lot else to report on early in the 1927 i don't know but this captures the imagination of the press in a big way and this is going to be a sensation and the way that the press paints this is particular to me there is a real sense that judd gray he's going to paint himself as a patsy that he was just this innocent dupe who was basically you know seduced by this you know femme fatale and we'll drop pictures of ruth snyder in the show notes and she doesn't look to me like a femme fatale but you guys can judge for yourself judd gray claims that he was just an innocent bystander a dupe caught in her machinations uh and is therefore not guilty and the press kind of seizes on this in a really unfair way and runs with it they are going to paint ruth snyder as this scheming temptress this sort of really vile horrible woman and i'm not saying she was great because she did conspire and possibly murder a man but also like 
the press does her a little dirty as well. Like they really give her the sort of misogyny treatment a big time. And Judd Gray is just seen as this dude who was just happened to be there, which doesn't also seem particularly fair to me. It is not clear at all to me why this murder captures the attention of the public. Like this just doesn't seem like the kind of murder that these are ordinary, boring people. This is not a political murder. This isn't particularly famous. These aren't important people. So why this captures the imagination of the tabloids isn't entirely clear. It doesn't seem to even have been clear then, but they're going to create a sensation out of this. The intensity of the interest in this trial which happens remarkably fast. Um, readers like learn that the age of the jurors adds up to the number 500 and that the judge has like hundreds of dogs that he cares for at his home. Like all these ridiculous and extraneous details one of the journalists says that this trial gets more press coverage than the sinking of the Titanic, which at that point was fresh in everybody's memory. It had only happened 15 years prior. It's a big deal. There's already, like, even in the midst of this trial, there's talks about making this into a murder. Like, D.W. Griffith is reportedly attached to a, you know, an option to make this into a murder with Mae West and the whole thing. Like, it's a big deal they work real hard to portray her as the bad guy and it kind of works the idea of a femme fatale for ruth snyder is a little bit of a stretch she's uh not quite that by this time she's haggard presumably living in jail is not really good to her and judd gray just basically sits at the trial and looks stunned and sort of how did i actually get here He's nicknamed the putty man because he seems so submissive to her and he seems so docile and sort of like he's been manipulated, whereas she's described in the press as the granite widow and the iron lady and the iron widow, because she seems to, in their writing, have this very intense, steely resolve while she's sitting in the courtroom. So there's definitely, I think, some editorializing going on with the way in which this is covered and the way and the lens to which the two of them are portrayed in the courtroom. You know, she looks harsh and and cruel and he looks stunned and yes. and shocked. And they're called they call her ruthless Ruth. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't love that one. I mean it's right there in the name. It is it's true it's right there in the name. And no one bothers and this is one of the things that just amazes me no one bothers to either figure out or spend any time discussing what happens to their poor little girl and maybe that's because she's a minor and they don't want to report on a a minor but it just seems like they're really intensely focused on the fact that Ruth is this terrible woman rather than the fact that she was a mom caught in a bad situation and with no way out and no, what she did was wrong. Absolutely. hundred percent. But she also like, there's a set of circumstances that leads to this that is as ever indicative of a broader societal problem. Like she can't get a divorce. She's financially tied to this really nasty man. Who's not nice to her. And no one seems to care what happens to her daughter. In fact, I did a, I fell down a rabbit hole trying to figure out what happens to Lorraine. Basically Lorraine is raised by Ruth's mother And then Albert's brother tries to sue for custody. And then Lorraine kind of falls off the map. She basically just gets raised somehow. Ruth's mother gets custody of her eventually. And she disappears into history. So no one seems to care that there's like an innocent child that has been really, her whole life has been ripped apart because of this. Judd Gray's wife and child are not given any interest. 
there's no finding fault with Judd Gray either. That's another thing that's really interesting to me about all of this is that Judd Gray was an adulterer and had a wife at home and a child and seems very willing to participate in this affair and possibly murder with Ruth. And it's he's not vilified for that at all. So there's a lot about the press coverage of this that really is, to me, very indicative of the moment, very indicative of a particular slant that they're going after. And there is a lot that the press does not, has no interest in telling the full story of this, which is sad for me. Yeah. And I, and I think the press and, and certainly the way in which this is presented in the courtroom by lawyers as well. So this is definitely the way in which the prosecution is sort of going after this definitely frames it in a particular way. And the other thing about this that's so interesting is this is a banal murder. Like this is really like they were, they clearly didn't know what they were doing. It wasn't especially well thought out. It's a boring case of middle-class infidelity that kind of goes awry. And it just for the most base of reasons, which is $100,000, which is a lot of money today, let's not lie, but is a lot of money in 1927. That's like a fortune. And that sort of goes under the the radar too, is that this is about financial security for her and about getting away from a man that's not really great to her or her child. And so I feel like Ruth gets the short end of the stick in the press coverage in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I mean, again, she's not a criminal mastermind. This is a desperate woman trying to get out of a situation. And she chooses a fairly immoral way to do that. Murder is not condoned on this podcast. No, no, no. Do not try this. Unless it's interesting to talk about. Yes. But, um, you know, she's painted as sort of, again, this skilled temptress with this, you know, violent, evil plan. And it's clear that she is not any sort of criminal mastermind. Right. And it's clear from like the remove of almost 100 years that she's just desperate and wants out of a bad situation. And there's no other way for her to do this, she feels. She's backed into a corner. And none of this gets in any way explored by the press. There's no interest in talking about like a larger issue here. She is very immediately painted as a bad seed and an evil person. Judd Gray is going to speak to the tabloids all the time, whereas Ruth does not. Judd Gray will talk about how he's a victim. He talks about how she hypnotized him, which I don't know a lot about hypnosis admittedly, but I'm pretty sure it's not that easy for an amateur to hypnotize somebody to the point where they're going to murder somebody else. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Not that that does him any good. I'll just say his claims of hypnotism and all the way that she forced him to do this. It doesn't really work for either of them, this defense. And in fairness, like to their lawyers, the lawyers have to present a defense. That's how the system works. But there really is no defense. They're dead to rights. They've got witnesses. They've got enough physical evidence. There's the double indemnity provides a huge motive. This is kind of open and shut as far as this stuff goes. And they are both going to be convicted. And it happens very fast. That's another thing that is interesting to me. Today, a murder like this happens and the trial takes place like a year later. This trial happens almost immediately. They have been convicted by the fall. And in fact, they're convicted and sentenced to execution. They'll be executed in January. So not even a year later, which is 
super duper fast. And they are going to be sentenced to execution in January of 1928 at Sing Sing in upstate New York. Judd Gray goes first and true to form, the tabloids portray him as being stoic and brave as he heads toward, you know, the electric chair. And Ruth is portrayed as hysterical and, you know, just sort of losing her cool at the sight of the electric chair. There is one final indignity for her. Apparently she, I'm sorry, she gets executed first. I apologize. Uh, She is executed first. Apparently the more hysterical one gets executed first. Apparently that is literally how they decided who gets to die first is that she's a little more hysterical. So she gets to go first. There were witnesses and one of them was a tabloid journalist. No cameras were allowed, but he sneaks in a camera attached to his ankle and as Ruth is getting electrocuted takes a picture it is the first picture of someone getting electrocuted and he then brings it to his whatever newspaper it is and has it published the next day and it's this really horrific image well I'll make sure there's something in the show notes that shows it it is you can't see her face because they cover your face but it's literally like this image of this person in between life and death in the midst of an execution the image is wobbly because of the electricity like it's this really horrific terrible image of this woman being executed Um, and whatever your feelings on capital punishment this is really invasive i feel like like she doesn't even get the dignity of dying with without the tabloids without being fodder for all of these eyes uh and the the lat her last literal last moments of life are used to sell newspapers. It's really kind of gross to me. Yeah, I, I think there's no no question about that. And I mean, there's a reason that they don't allow cameras in. They're trying to have a modicum of, I think, respect in these final yeah. moments. To this day. And so the fact that this reporter does this is pretty horrifying. And then the fact that an editor of any paper would agree to print it, I think today you'd find that a much harder sell for any paper to be willing to put that to print, but it is pretty horrifying. To sort of bring us back around to the pop culture aspect of this, we talked about sort of these reporters that are covering this beat. One of them is a man named James Kane, who had been a crime reporter in New York, had covered a number of crimes, and this one sort of sits in his head over the next couple of years. And in 1934, he actually publishes a novel called The Postman Always Rings Twice, which is another has been turned into another classic film and a not-so-classic remake, but there are... (laughs) There are multiple versions of this. So he publishes this novel, The Postman Always Rings Twice. Essentially, it is an unhappily married woman who is going to get together with her drifter lover and they're going to plot to kill her husband, right? Hello. Um, That is essentially what happens here. Now, that gets some interest. Of course, that gets made into radio play, into movies, et cetera, et cetera. But then two years later, he's going to write a serial, which um, is sort of a, a essentially a novella that's issued or printed over a series of time in a magazine. So this like little serial magazine, and he calls it Double Indemnity. So two years later, he's going to more specifically kind of reference the Sashwaite murder. Now, if you've seen Double Indemnity, He writes the serial, it becomes a novella, it becomes the movie. The plot is a little more complex and complicated, but what it does that brings to mind the Sashweet murder is it brings in the insurance claim, which 
is very much a big aspect of this, right? It's the big motive. And it really sets up this idea of the femme fatale. Yep. You know, this idea that this woman through and in the film, right? It is not because she is the victim of anything. It is through her own sort of sinisterness that she is going to try to dupe this patsy of an insurance salesman to go along with her plan. And she does it because she's Barbara Sandwick and she's beautiful and she can. So neither one of those two books and subsequent films are exact retellings of this story. Kane takes a lot of artistic license and pulls on other things he'd witnessed in his crime career. But these two things are directly inspired by this particular murder and really takes him from being a reporter into being a full-time novelist and writer and then, you know, into Hollywood. So his whole career kind of gets launched out of this one murder that he covers, which for Kane, it becomes sort of this big moment and he's able to capitalize on it, which is, I think, fascinating and an aspect maybe that some film buffs may not know, may not realize that both of those are drawn from the same murder and that Kane uses this real life situation to really give himself some fodder for what are pretty compelling stories, both to read and to watch on screen. But certainly if you watch the film Double Indemnity, in no way is that an accurate historical depiction of the Sashwait murder. No, no. It's kind of, I mean, obviously like in a movie, you, you clean up the dialogue and it sounds a little bit better, but also they're much better looking in Hollywood because as is Hollywood's want, they're all very good looking. And it's a noir, even I know, and I don't know anywhere near as much about movies as Becca does. It's a classic of the genre and really is the template that several other films will sort of copy the femme fatale. There's a lot of really strong elements uh, of uh, what becomes this sort of noir genre that come out of Double Indemnity. So the murder has had a long sort of rather interesting afterlife, I feel. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's worth sort of mentioning too that this the movie comes out in 1944. We're very much in the Hays Code era of Hollywood where there are sort of these self-imposed kind of moral and ethical restrictions to what you can and can't portray on screen. And one of the things that makes a film like Double Indemnity, I think, fun to watch is how do you depict this terrible murder, this horrible situation, these kind of scheming and conniving people and work your way around the Hays Code, right? How do you have a temptress? How do you have this, you know, sexual seduction when you can't show any of that and you can't be explicit? And that's where I think the artistry of what Billy Wilder does, uh, and he works with a, a very famous writer named Raymond Chandler, who's responsible for a lot of the kind of hard-boiled crime writing of the era, too. They work with Kane. Kane consults on the screenplay, and they try to figure out how do we tell this story while also navigating Hollywood's limitations at the time of what you could and couldn't say and do. And so there is, I think, some real artistry there in the film. Uh, and it's a good example, I think, of how things start to push the Hays Code a little bit, especially as we get through the 40s and 50s. But if you haven't watched it in a while, I recommend taking taking another view or if you've never seen it and you're hesitant about older movies, don't don't be. This is a good one. It'll catch you. It'll suck you in. And you may you may feel a little sad for Fred McMurray at yeah. the end, but maybe not. Remind me what the Hayes Code is. So the Hayes Code is essentially in response to some complaints and accusations of Hollywood portraying too much 
morally dubious content, right? Whether it's interracial relationships, whether it's women having freedom and no you know, consequences for their actions if they choose to do things that are unseemly. The idea was instead of having the government crack down on us, we're essentially going to implement our own sort of ethics code, if you want to call it that way. And so Hollywood sort of prohibits a lot of things. The major studios all agree to sort of prohibit profanity, nudity, graphic violence, sexual content, especially anything that's not heteronormative. Beyond that, really having very specific roles for women, for people of color. And this is something that will perpetuate through Hollywood for a few decades. And it really shapes the way that movies are made. We should do an episode on the Hays Code at some point because there's a really I think, interesting element of the federal government versus this industry versus public pressure. And yeah. um, there are some really incredible ways that people work around the Hays Code, but the Hays Code also in many ways is going to limit the ability of a lot of people in the industry to tell the kinds of stories they want to tell or be involved in the industry in any real way. But it's basically self-censorship on the part of the studios to respond to backlash and pressure to clean it up as it were. That's a very, a very basic overview of the Hays Code. I love that. But then how do you tell a story of a murder like this? Right. Without all these restrictions. And that's where I'll give some, some, some of the greats of Hollywood credit is they managed to produce really compelling work. And Wilder's take on this story, which again is a fictionalized inspiration from this murder, the way in which he finds a way to tell this story and get into all the moral gray area and all this kind of ethically dubious stuff uh, and still bring a sense of sex and violence to it without portraying it outright. That's the skill that, that Wilder has as a filmmaker. And it's what I think makes it so watchable still today. And speaking of women and their limited choices, I will also mention one of the things that I found doing the research for this is in 1974, Congress passed the Equal Opportunity and Credit Act, which said that women could get credit without their husbands signing off on it, which doesn't seem like it relates at all. But one thing that happens in the two things that happened in the next couple of years is that divorce rates skyrocket and the incidence of married men dying by accident drop. (laughs) So that's how this kind of ties in. Had Ruth Snyder had an ability, a financial ability to extricate herself from this man that was not making her happy, we might have not have the movie or the story because she would have had an out. And so I feel like that's the the way in which we're limiting women's choices is going to lead them to desperate situations. And I'm not suggesting or excusing murder. That's not my place. That's not my point. But giving women the opportunity to do something to have an out would have made this story a little bit of a better option, I think, for Ruth Snyder. Yeah, that's such, I think, an important historical connection to make and sort of this happens in the 20s. It takes 50 years for legislation to address one of these issues, right, which is sort of women's Mm -hmm. financial freedom. I don't think it's accidental that this happens in 27, which is just four years after Alice Paul has written the Mm -hmm. Equal Rights Amendment, which is about addressing things like this, which are legal rights under the law. Uh, One of the big push for Alice Paul to write, which she at that point called the Lucretia Mott Amendment, was so that women would have easier access access to divorce. Yes. 
Yep. I mean, that was one of her personal driving factors for an amendment like that was because of the extreme restrictions for women to seek a legal divorce and get out of what were often abusive, dangerous situations, and certainly um, situations where they had no financial independence or freedom. So this is not happening in a vacuum. And again, there's no I, there's no excusing murder, in my opinion, uh, and certainly what Ruth and Judd do and whoever does it behind those doors will never really know. But Again, I don't think it can be ignored that this is happening at a time where she has almost no other option. Right. None of these things happen in a vacuum. And you also see the tabloid reaction to this is in part, I think, at least spiced with the notion that women are having more rights and that there's a lot of fear of that. I think that that is sort of feeding into this tabloid frenzy around her crime and her arrest and the trial. I feel like that's also a part of this. And financial independence is really one of the main parts of independence. And I feel like that's what's lacking for Ruth Snyder. She feels like she has no other way out uh, of a, of a tough situation. And so that's kind of my, that's my little misogyny sadness there. (laughs) (laughs) This was such an interesting topic to delve into. We don't do a ton of true crime, but it is fun, I think, to look at these things with that historical lens. And I love, obviously, anytime we can talk about film and how these things are reflected through culture. You know, we have really from the beginning of radio and film and movies been interested in murder and crime. That has been the one of the earliest genres even before that, right? This is what crime novels, crime writing, serials. We want to read about this stuff. We want to, we want to hear about it. Uh, it hits that part of our brain that is a little illicit. So this was an interesting topic. It fascinates me that everybody's like, oh, true crime podcasts. It's like, no, we've been interested in true crime for a long time. Like, this is not new. Like, every radio play was a true crime podcast (laughs) before they existed. I mean, that's what so much of it was. And there were so many, we mentioned two names, Damon Runyon and and James Cain. You know, these reporters often were able to then take these stories they covered and sell them to the radio, to Hollywood when, when the Hollywood industry begins. But yeah, people had been interested in that long before IDTV, which is my sister's favorite TV station, and uh, True Crime Podcasts. So thank you all so much for coming along with us. We are so happy to have you back for another year. We definitely encourage you, if you aren't checking out the show notes online, check them out. There's a link. Um, If you're having trouble finding show notes, email us uh, or reach out to us. But we want to make sure you see we drop a lot of good links in there and, and images and things to supplement the episode. Please, please, please follow us on social media. We're Tour Guide Tell All. Most places are Tour Guide Tell. You can email us, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. We're building out the schedule for the year. So if there's topics you want us to cover, let us know. Thank you, thank you, thank you again for patrons. We'll have a new patron-only episode coming at the end of the month that we're really excited about. One of our favorite little scandals to talk about with another movie connection. So if you like movies, you're going to want to be a patron. Mm -hmm. Mostly though, just thank you. We're excited to have another year with you. Yay, thanks everybody. Bye.